Do you love traveling through time and space? Then listen to Gallif Radio, a Hoovian podcast, every other Friday, right here on the Journey into Comics Network, journeyintocomics.com. The following, following is a journey into comics. It's a journey into comics. It's a journey into comics. Journey into comics network. Network. network production. production. You're listening to Poor Entertainment. With your host, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Andrew Poor. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Poor Entertainment. Now, I know what you guys are thinking. This is Tuesday. Shouldn't this be the Poor Report? Yes, the Poor Report was a show that existed for 50 episodes, and at that time, it came to the conclusion that after 50 episodes, the Poor Report was just becoming too many things. There was too many topics to go back and forth. The show could have strictly been just political news, just that. And for those of you who still want that, that's great. The Poor Report is moving into two shows. Two bi-weekly shows covering different topics. This week is Poor Entertainment, which is going to be covering all things that entertain you. Entertainment news, TV, movies, books, all of that kind of stuff, music, everything that just kind of the good things in life. And then Poor News, which is the other side of that, which is the other spinoff of the Poor Report, which will cover the political news, news that affects the world as a whole, international news that relates to us as Americans, that sort of thing. So for those of you who are like, hey, what's going on? That's what's going on. So this week will be Poor Entertainment. Got a lot of news I want to talk about there. And then next week will be the first episode of Poor News, which will be very similar to the Poor Report. It'll just go, it'll be more focused. It'll be more streamlined. There'll be more talking points. And then doing it this way will give me a little chance to breathe. So I don't like, well, there was big entertainment news this week, but there's also big political news. And I don't have to split focus. So this will give us a chance for some stories to develop. So it won't be as late breaking as you're used to, unless there's something late breaking the day before I record that particular episode of Poor Entertainment or Poor News. But yeah, that's just kind of where the direction is going. So I hope you enjoy. This is a little experiment. It's not very often the show gets to 50 episodes and then just cuts it off and then starts two new ones, even though they're both spin-offs or both continuations of kind of what the show was before. Because on the poor part, I did talk about entertainment news and political news, presidential news, government, all of that. So I'm definitely glad that you guys are sticking around. If you listen to this, then you're already well ahead of the game. And it's still kind of developing as it goes. It's kind of one of those things you have to run before you can walk. So, yes, there's not really a new intro this week. And, yes, there wasn't really a bumper before uh, Journey into Comics. You got to listen to a, the bumper for Gallif Radio, which is starting on Friday. So, the same doing for that. And then, like always, the other shows I'm involved with, Foodies Watching Movies, which is on the break till the fall, late fall, I think. And then Adulting at Ease, which I do with my fiance Liz, which... I'll be back with tomorrow, so definitely some to stick around to. So definitely getting still plenty of me. It's still Tuesdays are still with me for those of you on the Journey into Comics Network. So, but with that, I'm gonna jump right into the news for this week. And there's a lot of stuff to talk about. And I'm gonna kind of break this up into a little more focus. Like I'm gonna jump in with TV, and there's some movie news, there's some music news, there's awards related news. So there's a bunch to talk about. But I'm gonna jump right into everyone's favorite speedster. So, The Flash is Grant Gustin. Grant Gustin is the the main character who plays Barry Allen or The Flash on CW's The Flash. 
So he actually got called out by body shamers after a superhero suit photo leak. So this is from Entertainment Tonight online. So, and he called out the body shamers. So this week, a photo of the Flash star in costume was leaked online. And while fans are eager for the upcoming fifth season, they didn't seem to be pleased with the actor's appearance. Gustin began to receive negative comments about his slim figure and how thin he looked. The 28-year-old actor, however, didn't let the criticism get to him, taking to Instagram on Wednesday to call out the haters in a lengthy post. Here's his quote. There's a terrible photo that I was unaware was being taken, much less being posted. Some things need work and they'll be worked on. We'll get there, he wrote addressing the leak pick in costume. As far as the body shaming, that's what pisses me off. Not even just for my sake. I've had 20 plus years of kids and adults telling me or my parents I was too thin. I've had my own journey of accepting it, but there's a double standard where it's okay to talk shit about a dude's body. I do my best to stay in shape and to add as much size as I can throughout these seasons. I'm naturally thin and my appetite is greatly affected by stress. Gustin added that gaining weight is a challenge for him and that thinner guys shouldn't be shamed for their appearance. He also added that he loves the suit that they designed for him and can't wait for fans to see the final product. There's a there's a longer Instagram post for those of you who follow Grant Gust on Instagram. It is Grant Gust. Um, Gustin isn't the first male celebrity to get criticized about his appearance. Last year, people began to comment that Chris Pratt was starting to look skeletal after having lost, quote, too much weight. The Jurassic World actor, who would share his snack of the day on social media, took on Chambers by calling them out in a funny message. So many people have said I look too thin in my recent episode of What's My Snack? Hashtag. Some people have gone as far to say I look skeletal, Pratt wrote in the caption. Well, just because I am a male doesn't mean I'm impervious to your whispers. Body shaming hurts. So yeah, definitely it's not okay. It's not a male or female. There seems to be people getting criticized. Like, I'm sure if Pratt would still look the way he did on Parks and Recreation, people would criticize him that he's too heavy or overweight to play a superhero. So you can't. Have both his, yeah, his Grant is never going to be as bulky as Ben Affleck's Batman. That's just they're two different people. And the Flash is always going to be a thinner hero. He's lean. He's a speedster. He's not doesn't have to be bulky. He's not a. Well, I guess you could say the same thing while someone, but it's a whole other thing. Like Stephen Amell has to be bulky. He's firing arrows. He's running. He's doing all that. Like the Flash is the he's a metahuman. He has that speed force in him. He's doesn't need to be this big bulky. 200 pounds all of pure muscle running around. It just wouldn't work. So, I, it's just a little ridiculous. That's something that's always disheartening, that people who try and stay in shape or try and look okay can... Call it just, it's, a, it's not a gender bias issue. It seems we're all affected. And people just need to be overcritical. Just wait until the show happens. I'm sure it'll look a lot different. I mean, I saw a picture looks like it's no longer going to be kind of a, a cowl. It looks like it's going to be more of a... A helmet that the Flash is going to have. There's no chin guard, so that'll be interesting to see in the final product. But I'm definitely excited for season five, which I think is in about two months from now. I think it's like October 13th, thereabout. I'm curious what dates. I know they ship things around. Super goes on Sunday, and everything else is going to kind of follow after it. But I'm definitely looking forward to it. And Grant's a great actor, so yeah, definitely stay tuned for that. And staying with CW news, there's a couple other things I want to talk about, and one involves. Actress who was cast to play Batwoman in the new CW crossover this season, as well as possibly getting her own spinoff on CW, and that is Ruby Rose. And she actually exited Twitter after the casting backlash as fans calling her the wrong lesbian for the role ridiculous. The hashtag recast Batwoman began circulating after the Orange is the New Black breakout was cast in the CW's upcoming superhero series. The CW announced August 7th that Ruby Rose, the Australian actress best known for a breakout role in Orange is the New Black would be leading its upcoming Batwoman television series in the title role, but not every fan of the comic book superhero was thrilled with the casting announcements. 
Angry Batwoman fans took to social media in the days following Rose's hiring to slam the decision by using the hashtag #RecastBatwoman. Fans complained that Rose was the wrong LGBTQ actor to play the superhero and noted that, unlike the character in the comics, Rose is not Jewish. Rose, currently starring on the big screen in The Meg, responded to the backlash removing herself from Twitter. Rose leader Twitter account after sending out one final message to her followers via Vulture. Uh, that's, I think, how it's... I am looking forward to getting more than four hours of sleep and to break from Twitter to focus all my energy on my next two projects. If you need me, I'll be on my bat phone. Before exiting the social media platform, Rose reacted to the backlash in disbelief. Where on earth did Ruby is not a lesbian, therefore she can't be Batwoman come from? She asked her followers. That has to be the funniest, most ridiculous thing I've ever read. I came out at 12 and have, for the past five years, I deal with, she's too gay. How do you all flip it like that? I didn't change. When women and when minorities join forces, we are unstoppable, and when we tear each other down, it's much more hurtful than from any other group, Rose continued. But hey, love a challenge. I just wish women in the LGBT community supported each other more. Following her American breakthrough on Netflix's Orange is the New Black, Rose went on to star in films such as John Wick Chapter 2, Pitch Perfect 3, and Triple X Return of Xander Cage. Rose is hardly the first actress to remove herself from social media because of toxic fandom. This year alone, Star Wars last Jedi actress Kelly Marie Tran wiped her Instagram clean because of harassment, while Stranger Things star Millie Bobby Brown deleted her Twitter account for the same reason. And I actually just saw her in the Meg I watched over the weekend with some friends, and she does a great job in it. The Meg is probably one of the best B-movies, I'm going to call it. Just, like, movies that, like, like, it's worlds better than a Sharknado, and it's just as fun. So definitely check that out. I was thinking about when I was playing this episode to go into a deep review of it, but I think I'm going to keep it a little bit brief today, just kind of get, kind of grease the wheels with this new show and kind of move forward from there. And I guess staying within the CW-verse, because kind of go to a more positive spin, and that involves The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So this is from the CW versus kind of a semi-spinoff of Riverdale by the shame showrunner, and it's coming to Netflix this October, starring Kiernan Sherpka, which a lot of you will know was the, uh, played the daughter of Don Draper from Mad Men. So the Supreme Teenage Witch is back, but this is not the Melissa Joan Hart version from your childhood. Netflix has debuted the first look photos from its upcoming series. This series was a darker spin on the Sabrina comic book and comes from Riverdale showrunner Robert to Aguirre Sacasa. The chilling event Sabrina follows the titular half-human, half-witch as she battles the forces of evil threatening her world, all while deciding whether she wants the life of a witch or the life of a human. The supporting class includes Miranda Otto, Lucy Davis, Ross Lynch, Michelle Gomez, and Chance Perdomo. The series marks Shipka's first regular television show role since starring as Sally Draper on Mad Men. And very interesting pictures. I'll have to throw them up on our Twitter. The show is being split a little bit, or my socials. So Facebook has been changed. It's going to be for the poor news, which will obviously air next week. And then my Twitter is going to be exclusively doing poor entertainment. So I'll be sharing pictures and articles and stuff on that. Just keep them two separate just so I don't have so many sets of socials I have to deal with for all the shows I'm a part of. But you can see the pictures, um, blonde hair, red robe, and there's also kind of creepy pictures with a lot of them in black, and there's a satanic figure, and she's kneeled down in white. It looks very interesting and definitely a lot darker than the family sitcom with Melissa Joan Hart and the talking cat and all that. But I'm definitely going to check that out on Netflix. I never really got into Riverdale. I didn't really start watching it. I may have to give it a try, because those CW shows definitely have some interesting content. And... With a returning character that we're all kind of surprised by, yes, 
we've seen that we're now getting a Batwoman. Yes, there's now a new Sabrina the Teenage Witch show, even though it's The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Involves a classic character that a lot of people in the world of nerddom or geekdom, or however you want to define it, and that involves Patrick Stewart returning to Star Trek. So if you're a Star Trek lover, you can't have missed the news that has the fandom wired. Patrick Stewart returned to the Trek universe as John Luke Picard will be starring in his own series for CBS All Access. CBS All Access, as you know, is CBS's direct-to-consumer product online that kind of kicked off with their flagship show, Star Trek Discovery. So, and as of course, Picard's one of the most iconic characters from the franchise's half-century of history, but we haven't seen him for a long while. In fact, the last time Stewart played the part was back in 2002's underwhelming Star Trek nemesis. So whether the actor decided to come back as the character that he brought to life in Star Trek The Next Generation in 1987, which is before a lot of us were born, uh, has the British Thespian just sitting by the phone waiting for the call? Actually, quite the opposite. The announcement of Stewart's return was made by the actor himself in an appearance at the Star Trek convention in Las Vegas over the weekend. Before he dropped the big news, he explained why he stayed away from the franchise for so long after recounting a story about the time he lost a job because he was typecast. Stewart spoke of how he made a promise to himself to never play Picard again, but that changed when he received an interesting email. I was determined that 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 was the past, it was over, and it would be a voyage I would never undertake again. I made a particular point of stressing that until earlier this year when an email arrived and there was an offer. Interesting and charming, but one that I knew I would have to turn down. Stuart paused for a laugh from the crowd and then went on to explain what changed to make him want to do the project. It seems it was a mix of the exciting plans the showrunners have in store and the actor rediscovering what he loves about the franchise that helped him decide to hop on board. He went on to say, Well, that's how I felt. And I had a meeting, there was five of us in the room, I had spent 20 minutes explaining why with sadness I would have to say no, but something has happened, and it's not only the impact of the people I have been talking to and working with for the past almost six months now, but it's also because I have a, spent a lot of time recently watching The Next Generation. Gradually it became clearer and clearer to me the power and the success of that show. Picard's new show comes to the minds of all-round Star Trek architect Alex Kurtzman, Star Trek Discovery's James Duff, and Akiva Goldsman, acclaimed novelist and screenwriter Michael Chaban, and Kirsten Beyer, who's also in charge of maintaining continuity across all the multimedia franchise. They just know what exactly they've got planned remain under lock and key, but we'll keep you posted with more about Picard's exciting comeback as and when we hear it. And actually, I watched the YouTube clip of him talking at the convention, and it sounds like the... He kind of was a little vague on the diesel, but said Jean-Luc Picard might no longer be captain, and he may be in a different place than we last saw him in Nemesis. So it looks like it'll definitely be an interesting continuation. I never really watched the Star Trek The Next Generation beyond uh, some of the movies. I remember the movie that had Shatner back, so it might actually get me to dive back in or maybe watch a best-of compilation of all of The Next Generation and press that. And it may incline some more people to get on CBS All Access. I haven't felt the desire yet, especially with... DC's one coming in the fall, and Marvel, or Disney's one's coming later this next year, I believe. So, definitely a lot going on. And the last bit of TV news I had was probably the first article I found while prepping the show. And that involves a song that a lot of you might remember from probably 10 or more years ago, maybe closer to 15. And that involves the song by the Plain White Tees called Hey There Delilah. And it's actually being turned into a television series. Uh, Lively McCabe Entertainment and Primary Wave will shop what is being described as a scripted romantic dramedy to networks and studios this month. The Plain White Tee's number one hit, Hey There Delight, is being adapted into a scripted TV series. The Grammy and Tony-nominated band is teaming up with 
Like I said before, the live of the McCabe Entertainment and Primary Wave to develop a scripted romantic dramedy based on its chart-topping single about a long-distance relationship. Producers including the band's frontman and songwriter Tom Higginson, as well as writer Jeremy Desmond, will be an L.A. pitch in the potential series, described as a contemporary fairy tale that expands the story within the song to multiple networks and studios this month. The song released in 06, so about 12 years ago, tells the tale of a long-distance flirtation between a struggling singer-songwriter and a New York City University student. Songwriter pledges to write a song for the young woman on the night they meet, and they promise to change their lives in unexpected ways. So it'll be interesting, kind of how that goes. I remember really liking the song when it's been, but it's been a very long time. Uh, I guess there's actually more to the article. It's been more than a decade since Heather Delilah was released, and people always ask me about it. A whole lot of people really connected with that song, and I'm very proud of that. I'm so excited to have an opportunity to give a new generation the chance to form their own connection with the song and fall in love with its story through this new project. Higginson came up with the concept for the TV foray alongside Desmond and Lively McCabe's Michael Barra. Desmond will pen the script. Primary Wave's Deb Klein is attached to produce. Heather Delilah is a perfect example of an iconic story song that has introduced characters and a premise to a massive multi-generational audience and is begging to be expanded into a full-length story for contemporary television audiences. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I don't. I think it's basically like every other rom-com type show. Long Distance has definitely been played up in TV and that. So, unless there's a big hook beyond the fact that this probably the show is going to be called Heather Delilah and it's going to be yeah, Long Distance, a guy in New York or or a girl in New York, a guy on the road. So yeah, I'm definitely curious to see if it comes to anything. I know it doesn't mean it's a sure thing. They're just shopping it around, and it could end up being picked up by one of the streaming services, it could end up being picked up for a short run, it could get a pilot and have nothing more happen to it. TV's very fickle, and like I've read a lot of, it's like, of all the pilots get made, like 5% or 10% get picked up, so it's definitely a long shot, but we'll kind of have to wait and see, and if it pops up again, I'm sure it'll make some headlines. And I guess that moves to some of some sad news, and that involves... The Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. This is kind of moving into our short little bit of music news we had. And that is... Well, I guess it's kind of... The last one was a little bit of music news, too. Music, TV. Um, so, Aretha Franklin is gravely ill, her family says. So, Franklin, 76, was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1942. The daughter of famous pastor and civil rights activist C.L. Franklin. When this was just two, she left Memphis for the new Bethel Baptist Church in Detroit. And Motor City Legend was ready to be born. Franklin is the third most Grammy Awards for any female artist in history. In an interview last year, Franklin said she plans to retire after the release of her new album. Um, I must tell you, I'm retiring this year, Franklin said. Franklin said she was exuberant about her new album and can't wait to get in the studio. Um, she kind of goes on to say that she just wants to relax and be with her. I think her grandkids are going off to college, so she just wants to spend time doing that. The resume updates someone close to family says... Uh, I'm saddened to report that the Queen of Soul and my good friend Aretha Franklin is gravely ill. I spoke with her family members this morning. She is asking for your prayers at this time. I'll have more details as I'm allowed to release. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, hopefully, um, she's able to turn around. I know she's getting up there in age, but she's still definitely a young, younger for um, a lot of people that are out there now. So definitely hope she's able to pull through. She's definitely made a, definitely a big impact in the world of music. And I guess this week's one little article I have about the Meg. Uh, I'm definitely not going to go into a review on it. Maybe I can get Liz on a future episode to review it, maybe with another movie that we'll probably have seen by then. And this involves the 20-year journey of the Meg, the movie the internet wouldn't let die. 
It was the mid-2000s, and Jan DeBont, director of such big-screen velocities as Speed and Twister, was showing off a small sculpture of Charcaradon, Megalodon, the agent shark that was to be the first, be the star of his next film, Meg, based on Steve Alton's 1997 book about a deep-sea diver who encounters a prehistoric underwater beast. Meg's been the subject of a million-dollar movie rights deal before the book was even published. In the nearly ten years that followed, the film adaption had worked its way through two studios and several screenplays, including one written by Alton himself. Now with DeBont in charge, there was hope that Meg would finally be brought to life. Third had even commissioned a maquette of the movie's massive creature described in Alton's book as 70-foot, 70,000-pound prehistoric cousin of the great white shark. When the director showed the mock-up to Alton, however, the author didn't see this any massive beast he described in his book. It looked like a bonefish, says Alton. Now, it was horrible. Ultimately, DeBont departed the movie, leaving Meg dead in the water once again. Later set back in what had become an almost comically overcomplicated development process when the newly retitled The Meg opened in theaters Friday. It marked the end of a two-decade journey, one that saw numerous dead ends. Yet throughout it all, Elton never gave up on Meg. The internet simply wouldn't let him. To its fans, the appeal of Meg says Nick Nutziana comes down to a two-word concept, Jurassic Shark. In the late 90s, Nutziana founded Chud, Cinematic Happenings Under Velvet, one of the several movie-obsessed websites launched in the pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook area. Back then, outlets like Ain't It Cool News, Dark Horizons, and Corona Coming attract eagerly reported the latest scuttlebutt on long-rumored films like James Cameron's Spider-Man, most notably the infamously anticipated 1999 Star Wars prequel The Balance of the Force. At least that's what we thought it was called at the time. Many of these sites' message boards were filled with speculation, sometimes indignation, about what movies were coming next. The films that most often lit up webgoers' imaginations at the time were not surprisingly based on franchises, comic books, and TV shows. But all the late 90s chatter about a possible new Lord of the Rings or Blade Runner 2, there was Always a smaller but sustained frenzy over Meg. In 1996, Hollywood Pictures Division of Disney had optioned the rights to Alton's book, which opened in the crustaceous period with the titular beast taking down a T-Rex. Then cuts to the present day when humans find the Megalodon lurking in a massive undersea trench. It's easy to guess what movie Disney had in mind when they bought Meg, because of a giant fish, a lot of people compared it to Jaws, says Nutsiana, who read Meg shortly after its 1997 release, but Jaws is the primordial character-driven thing that's much larger than the sum of its parts. Meg was an easy, pretension-free idea. You could enjoy it on a surface level as long as you were able to embrace your inner childhood. According to Alton, however, the early attempts at a Meg movie veered far away from its original novel. They went through some subpar screenplays as the 50-year-old author. I had virtually no input. One particularly out-there script equipped the creature with wings. Weird. Eventually, the movie stalled, in part because Disney couldn't make the movie fast enough to beat out 1999's Deep Blue Sea. The rights reverted later back to Alton, who in 2002 launched an online petition asking fans to express their interest in getting Meg made. That was the option I had, says Alton. I mean, there was no interest from Hollywood. I needed really to get the project out there again. The petitioner earned more than 65,000 signatures, an impressive enough figure given that the campaign was mostly prompted through Alton's site. The author had spent several years building up his online fan base, even including his email address in his books. The Megheads are very loyal, he says. I keep them appraised of everything. I answer every email. Make them characters in my books. They're involved as much as any fan base is ever involved. In one email newsletter, Alton thanked his followers from their support. When the Meg movie eventually hits its big screens, he wrote, I want you to think, the previews thinking, hey, I got Steve's email about every month. I emailed him, spread the word about his book. Heck, I really helped get the movie made. Guess what? You absolutely did. That was the fall of 04, eight years after Alton sold the film rights. By then, he'd written his own screenplay for Meg. He'd also teamed up with Newt Siana whose film Geekery Bonafides allowed him to bring the movie to Guillermo del Toro, the director of Kronos and Hellboy, eventually Oscar winner for Shape of Water. 
The filmmaker got the attention of New Line Cinema, which hired DeBont to direct the movie. But while Alton was happy with DeBont, the development process itself was choppy. New Line executives became nervous about the film's budget, trying to get the price down to $100 million, and Alton's screenplay was jettisoned in favor of a new script, which the author didn't like. It was like Moby Dick with the shark, he says. In the same ways, the timing for Meg movie simply wasn't right. Post-9-11 audiences did not want to see fun, disaster-type stories that didn't have a somber tone. It took a while for people to be able to leave their cynicism at the door and embrace a really pulpy monster movie. There was also studio politics to deal with as the movie accumulated multiple producers. Whatever new movie news sites excitedly reported that Meg was back again, New Line never went ahead with the film. Del Toro departed the project, as did Nuziata. We were as close to a green light as you could possibly get. It was Hollywood at its most cartoonish, except our f- futures were hinged on that stupidity. Even though it had been a long time since the publication of Meg in 1997, fans still clamored for a film version. As one ain't it cool commentator asked in 2008, where is the Meg movie? But after the New Line project dissolved, Alton's best answer was a sufficient promise he posted to make it on his web state. Stay tuned, folks. Maybe it's fate, says Alton, looking back at Meg's long and torturous development. It's late July, just a few weeks before the release of the now-retitled The Meg, starring Jason Statham, Ray Wilson, and Ruby Rose, as directed by John Turtletob, who made the two National Treasure movies, and the John Travolta is telekinetic now flick phenomenon. The film's trailers play up its digital effects, which Alton notes wouldn't have been anywhere near as advanced 20 years ago. Plus, he points out the Meg has the advantage of coming out in the social media era. It's much easier to get the word out about a giant shark tail than it was in the 90s. Perhaps 2018 is the year the Meg was destined to arrive after all. But that didn't make the last day or so any less trying after the movie rights again reverted back to Alton. He put his faith in Bell Avery, a producer whose work includes the 2007 Sidney Lumet drama Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. I trusted her to safeguard the project and make sure nobody does anything stupid. In the meantime, the author continued to write books and corresponds with fans, even holding contests that allow their names and likeness to be used in his novels. Also for them, his recent progress after receiving a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease in 2007. Finally, two years ago, the trades confirmed that a Meg movie was finally happening, co-financed by Chinese company Gravity Falls. It took Bell seven years and a lot of hard work, and but she managed to get it done. The arrival of the Meg marks an end of one of the longest movie waits of the web era. There are still a handful of obsessed over films that have yet to be made, products that have been scrutinized online for decades, like the long-rumored adaption of H.P. Lovecraft's legendary tale at the Mountains of Madness, but so many of the films that have been clamored for in the 90s and early 2000s have already been realized. The Dark Tower, John Carter, Watchmen, a second Blade Runner. That makes the Meg appropriate enough one of the last of its species. The movie made in no small part because the fans wouldn't let it sink. But there's no way to knowing how two decades of online anticipation will play out at the box office. Meg always felt like an underdog. And I think that's something that will help it. It's hardcore fans are powerful and they're really connected with Steve. They became a security blanket. Which is partly why to this day, Alton... Still writing back to anyone who drops him a line, my philosophy is they've taken the time and expense to buy my book and read it and deserve a personal response. And I've stuck with that for 22 years. People give me a hard time and say, why are you still using AOL? Well, because that's the email address in all my books, and that it's the only one I've ever had. And as far as I know, I think the Meg has done really well in the box office and well as the Chinese markets. And a little bit else of other movie news, moving back from the Meg into everyone's favorite uh, spy, and that involves 007. And this is an article involving uh, James Bond <clears throat> producers are reportedly leaning towards Idris Elba as the next 007. There are a lot of actors who could play 007 once Daniel Craig retires from the role he despises. Tom Hardy, Michael Fassbender, Tom Hiddleston, David Aiello, 
who actually voices the character in the audiobooks, so I didn't know. Hell, even contrary mustached human man Henry Cavill thinks he has what it takes. There's only one actor who should be the next James Bond, and that's Idris Elba. This is actually an article from Esquire. There's been some back and forth on the subject of Elba and Bond. It became back in 2014 when emails released during the massive Sony hack revealed that then-studio co-chair Amy Pascal told a colleague, Idris should be the next Bond. And for the last two years, Elba was very strictly maintained that he's not going to play James Bond. In fact, he thinks the next Bond should be a woman. Now, news reports indicate that James Bond producers are starting to lean toward the idea of Elba taking on the role. Director Antoine uh, Fuchia revealed that details of a conversion between Bond producer Barbara Broccoli, okay, in which she said it is time for a non-white actor to take on the iconic role. Uh, Fuqua discussed who might be the next running with Broccoli, who's certain the progress will move will happen eventually with Idris Elba reported frontrunner for the role. It's not much, but it's a good sign that Bond producers are at least leaning to the right direction. What's interesting, though, is that when it comes to the topic of Bond, Elba's response is often that no one is really considering him for the role. This certainly changes things. Nothing but respect for James Bond. And I guess the biggest news out of kind of the entertainment world, and that involves some Oscar changes. The Academy Awards announced last week that they're going to make some changes. So, alarmed by plunging television ratings for the Academy Awards, the organization behind the Oscars said on Wednesday it would add a category for blockbuster films and shorten the telecast by giving out some statuettes during commercial breaks. Yet adding a category for a standing achievement in popular film, as John Bailey, the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, put in a letter to members, could create new problems for the beleaguered organization. What if a movie many seem as a legitimate Best Picture contender, the worldwide smash Black Panther, for instance, receives a nomination for the populist Oscar, but not for the best overall picture? Does that mean Black Panther and films like it are second-class citizens? The letter co-signed by Don Hudson, the Academy's chief executive, did not say what would constitute a popular film, or whether movies nominated in that category would also be nominated for Best Picture. Academy spokesmen later clarified that they could. The category will make its debut at the next Oscar ceremony, which will take place on February 24th and televised on ABC. Eligibility requirements and other key details will be forthcoming, the letter said. Kevin did not respond to a request to interview Ms. Hudson or Mr. Bailey, who was re-elected to a second one-year term as president at a board meeting on Tuesday night. The Academy's board also voted to help the telecast to three hours, which is described as an effort to deliver a more accessible Oscars for viewers worldwide. To trim the telecast, the last show in March stretched nearly four hours. The Academy said it would present select categories during commercial breaks with the winning moments edited and aired later during the broadcast. They did not say which categories could be edged aside. The most likely were the three Oscars been in for short films. Producers hired to shape the annual telecast have long pressed the Academy to reduce the number of awards presented on air. There are now 25, but Academy traditionalists, some of whom have left the board in recent years, always push back. The third change will not take place until 2020, the Academy said. The test will be held earlier in the year in an attempt to speed up Hollywood's award season, which in recent years has stretched to four solid months of ceremonies. By the time the Oscars roll around, there is a little suspense about who will win what, and the honors themselves have a catatonic look, having been trotted from one awards podium to the next. The change days may force other telecasts, including the Grammy Awards, to recalibrate their own position on the calendar. The addition of a category for blockbusters was immediately assailed by some prominent film critics. Manola Dargis of New York Times called the changes stupid, insulting, and pathetically desperate. While some responses were favorable, the Academy also drew wide mockery with the social media universe suggesting other categories that might draw more viewers like hottest on-screen, on-screen kiss or best stunts. Whether its remedies are the correct ones or not, the Academy 
had to take some kind of action. The Oscars are increasingly out of touch. A record low of 26.5 million people watched this year's telecast. A nearly 20% drop from a year earlier. As recently as four years ago, the Academy Award had an audience of 43.7 million viewers. We've heard from many of you about improvements needed to keep the Oscars and our Academy relevant in a changing world. The Board of Governors took the change seriously. The Oscar telecast is a big business, generating 83% of Academy's $148 million in annual revenue. ABC controls broadcast rights for the show until 2028 at a cost of roughly $75 million a year. ABC was seeking as much as $2.8 million per 30-second commercial for the most recent telecast. Nosedive ratings threaten all that income, not to mention eroding the position of the Oscars in comparison to the f- more freewheeling Golden Globe Awards. A few more years of declines in the Globes will be the higher-rated show. Reasons for the Oscars' decline abound. The general fragmentation of the media landscape is one, but the central complaints have been about the telecast marathon length and increasing tendency to under niche films that the majority of American moviegoers have not seen. Last year's Best Picture winner, The Shape of Water, had sold about 60 million tickets at the time for playing in theaters for 14 weeks. Black Panther, by comparison, took in 102 million over the first three days in North American theaters alone. In 2009, the Academy tried to make room for more widely seen films by doubling the number of potential nominees for the Best Picture Award to 10 from 5. The shift occurred after The Dark Knight, a critically acclaimed superhero film, was shut out of the Best Picture category, despite receiving nominations in 8 others and winning in 2. But allowing more Best Picture nominations did little to solve the problem, but for the most part, movie dumb's elite continues to bypass films with large audiences and simply put forward additional niche ones. One rumpus after another is Royal the Academy in recent years after black actors in films that focus on black characters were overlooked for Oscar nominations in 2015 and 2016. The hashtag Oscars so white social media outcry was so fierce the Academy raced membership changes into effect. There's been progress but still mostly white and male. The 2017 Oscar had the humiliation of naming the wrong movie La La Land as the best picture winner before the era was corrected from the stage and Moonlight was given the trophy. More recently the Academy struggled to contend with the hashtag Me Too movement the organization has put behavioral guidelines in place for members, only to have Mr. Bailey become the policy's first test. A woman accused him of inappropriate touching during a fan ride on a movie set. Can be said in March that it had no cut on an investigation clue the claim had no merit. And just so you know that this is not something I necessarily agree with, I think... I actually had this question for another podcast that is all about Oscar news and the award season. I just said, like, if there should be a category for uh, a blockbuster film or a film that makes over X amount of dollars, and now it seems like that is definitely something that's coming. But popular film is very thing like, what's popular to me or what I enjoy is not necessarily what someone else. It's it's too subjective, so I'm interested to see what they actually come out with as their criteria and if that helps anything. But you know what's bad when actually the Razzies, as you know as the ones that award the worst films of the year, actually address the Oscars. So the Oscars learn themselves to honor popular fare just to get more eyeballs not conducted to their brand, wrote the organization in the letter. The Razzies on Sunday published an open letter to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences addressing the Oscars' new category honoring the best popular film. The Razzies don't always get it right. We get called on it. We usually ignore it because, well, who takes the Razzies seriously? Because the letter from the organization, which recognizes the worst movies and performances of the year, the day before the Academy Awards, but seriously, we're not the Oscars. The Oscars are not the lowbrow 497 statues that remind otherwise good talent they done bad or the talent-free they done made too much money. The Oscars loan themselves to honor popular fare just to get more eyeballs and not conducive to their brand. Everyone depends on the Oscars to point out the good stuff that might not otherwise be seen. The note continued. 
The letter added that the new Oscar category may overshadow the Razzie Awards' work. We sift through bottom of the barrel mindless popular and sometimes unpopular entertainment. The Razzies invite the dishonored to humble themselves and their own and own their bad, that's our job. The note concluded, so a tip to our older, more distinguished, bald brother, your inspiration, don't fail us now. The Razzies are codependent and Oscar. If you are devalued, so are we. So you know you're definitely not making a good decision if the Razzies, who's known for that kind of bottom of the barrel, overhyped, not great films. And I think that's a good way to end this episode definitely new. I'm still kind of getting used to a different format, a different type of show, but I definitely want to thank you guys for sticking around for this episode. There'll definitely be more coming in two weeks, so definitely stay tuned for that. There'll be a new intro and a bumper probably to go along with it at that time, but definitely stay tuned next week for Poor News, which will be covering all the stuff that's been going on in the political atmosphere as well as everything else going on in the world. So, That's it for Poor Entertainment for this week. I am Andrew. Have a great week.